If you will, please turn in your Bibles or look on with me in our bulletin as we consider together the passage of Genesis chapter 26. Today we'll be looking at this story of Isaac the patriarch and specifically looking at the lengthiest section in all of the book of Genesis where Isaac is uh, treated, his life, the promises that flow through his life, the actions that he took, the movements that he made, the advances that God himself moved in and through Isaac to accomplish. All of those things bound up here in the passage that we're about to read in Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 to 33. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking, Lest the men of that place should kill me because of Rebekah because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. And when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled uh, over that also, so that they called its name Sitna. 
And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar, and Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord in heaven, we have just heard a number of stories in your presence with one another about your servant, the patriarch Isaac. And we have seen in these stories the ups and downs of our father in the faith as he has sought you and also wandered from you and you in your kindness have brought him back and continued to guide him. Lord, in the way that you have cared for and been a father to Isaac, we would ask that you would now in this moment be a father to us to through the power of your Holy Spirit who indwells within us that he would open up this passage of Scripture so that we could see it and behold its richness and the beauty of its truth and receive it like a word that's implanted within our hearts that it would bear much fruit for the spreading of your glory both in our lives and community and even to the uttermost parts of the world. Lord, we desire for you to be honored in this time. Come now, hear this petition, and listen even better to the prayer that your spirit is praying right now, for he knows how to pray perfectly in accord with your will. Answer his petition, I ask it, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think it's probably fair to say that many fathers secretly desire for their sons to follow in some real way in their footsteps. I was reminded of that recently, just taking my son Knox to the batting cage and seeing anxious dads getting their sons in the batting cages to become better batters in time for tryouts and assessments as they go into the 
to the season ahead. And you know it as you've seen moms and dads alike cheer at football games and basketball games and dads traipse off into the woods with guns with sons and you've seen it in handing books off to a child that you want them to love because you loved them when, they're, when you were their age and whatever it would be. It's just true of fathers and probably true of mothers that we like to see our sons and our daughters in some way, shape, and form follow in the footsteps that we've walked. That in some real way, we might be able to say, like father, like son. It's not, of course, just in sports or in, or in recreation or in the reading of books or study or pathways. We see this in business all the time. Men who've started businesses that have become profitable, of which they've placed their name on, and of which their son, as he comes in through the ranks, maybe a teenager having a little time off during the summer, he hires him part-time to get him into to sweep the floors of the, of the workshop or the warehouse and to show him the ropes, as it were, of what it means to run this company. And dad never mentioning, but always pondering, maybe one day, son, this will be your business. Maybe you'll follow in my footsteps and carry the family name and legacy and business forward so that we can have a billboard on the side of town that says, for 10 generations, from son to grandson to great-grandson and so forth, this particular business has been run. In some real way, we want to be able to say, like father, like son. And I was reading this week, my One of my favorite authors, Wendell Berry, is reading his little essay called The Work of Local Culture, which maybe some of you in this room have read. He hearkens back to times in the past and even eras in history, like the medieval period, for instance, of when a father following a son in a business or in the pathway of life, even dwelling within the same home and roaming in the same lands, wasn't just a possible dream, it was really an essential probability, a nature of the way things would probably go. Sons didn't get the chance to say, I'd rather be a lawyer than a carpenter. I'd rather go into business than to be a plumber. I'd rather be an electrician than a dentist. When you didn't have the opportunities to so much choose your calling, but that your calling chose you by virtue of the family that you are in, there was something in those traditions where fathers and sons and the generations that followed, there was a bit of a pride in it. Not necessarily the bad sense of pride, the the respectful sense, that they valued and cherished the forms and the practices and the lifestyles and the commitments that were carried down culturally through their family heritage. And they hoped one day that they'd be able to say, like father, like son, For generation after generation after generation. Well, when we approach Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 to 33, we are really looking at a father-like son sort of story. A story that in an uncanny and even remarkable way, the father Abraham's life is embedded, though never present, 
in the life of his son, Isaac, here in the verses of Genesis 26, 1 to 33. In many ways, we have as much a scope of the life of Abraham in this chapter, though he's never mentioned and long gone, than we do the life of Isaac, who is in high relief and the lead character and actor, humanly speaking, in the text of Genesis chapter 26. What do I mean when I say that? That the life of Abraham is here in the life of Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. Well, in simple reflection this week, even before I turn to any resources for help or commentators to guide, I simply reflected upon these 33 verses and I saw no less than seven parallels, mirrorings, or echoes between the life of Abraham, the father, and the life of Isaac, the son. For starters, you can see right there in verse 1 that the father Isaac and, or the father Abraham and the son Isaac faced the same trials. If you'll look there in verse 1 of Genesis 26, you'll see what was the impetus for the migration for the sojourn or the journeying that we see Isaac do in this passage? Well, of course, it was a trial. What was the trial? A trial of famine. A trial of famine. You recall any famines in Abraham's life? Well, of course you do. Back in Genesis chapter 12, in fact, right after God had originally given to Abraham the promises, the covenant promises, It's Abraham who goes through the trial of famine and immediately goes where? He goes to Egypt. And you remember it didn't go so well for him there in Egypt. He had troubles there in Egypt. It may be why we see the kind of foreboding note at the opening of Genesis 26 when God begins to intervene in the midst of the famine that Isaac is experiencing. And God says, don't go down to Egypt. (laughs) I know you're going to do what your father did. Don't, don't do what your father did. I want you to sojourn in the land that you're in. And he sends him down to Gerar. Now, some of you, because you hear that name Gerar, and you said, I've heard that somewhere else. Yes, you have. You heard it in the life of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 20, verse 1, it was Abraham who sojourned in Gerar. He was the one who walked the same path out of Egypt, ultimately to the place in which Isaac finds himself sojourning for a famine as well. They face the same trials. They walk the same paths. But notice they dwell in the exact same land. Did you notice that in Genesis 26, 18, in this valley of Gerar, what did Isaac redig in the valley of Gerar? The wells of his father Abraham. The very wells where Abraham had dug for water and had found springs by which to live that had been stopped up after Abraham's death, Isaac rediscovers them and redigs them. He's not only facing the same trials, he's not only walking the same paths, he's dwelling in the same land, but it doesn't stop there. He actually meets the same people. You recall King Abimelech, right? We've met him first in Genesis chapter 20, verse 2, and it was when Abraham was in this very land, he met King Abimelech. And here we're told that it's a King Abimelech that Isaac is supposed to go down and meet. Now, we're not sure if it's the same King Abimelech. This may be King Abimelech 2 or 3 or 4, 10 for necessarily all we know, or maybe Abimelech is a part of the title that was actually received from the, the ruler Um, the, the king in that particular area. We're not sure. But undoubtedly, the same people 
is exactly who Isaac is meeting that Abraham met some 80 to maybe even 100 years earlier. Not only are they facing the same trials and walking the same paths and dwelling in the same land and meeting the same people, but they're experiencing the exact same conflicts. Genesis 26, 19 through 22, we see Isaac get in all kinds of, of situations at loggerheads with the herdsmen there in Gerar over the wells that he had re-dug, the ones that were his father Abraham. He dug one and they quarreled. He dug another and they quarreled. And he dug one and finally there was room for them. Well, if you look back to Genesis chapter 21, 25, we see that Abraham had the same sort of conflict with the servants of Abimelech, for they had come in and had seized one of Abraham's wells a hundred years ago. Very same concept. And he came, Abimelech came to Abraham, and they actually ultimately made a treaty, which is exactly what we see happens in the past. Not only do they experience the same conflict, they swear the same oaths. Abraham exchanges oaths with Abimelech in Genesis 21, 31 to 32, and so does Isaac here in 26, 25 to 31. I'm almost done. Not only do those six things pattern between Abraham and Isaac, we also see most vividly, and you were waiting for this one, they made the same mistakes. They made the same mistakes. Both men make the mistake of letting fear get the better part of them. In an attempt to protect himself, Abraham and Isaac as well decided to come up with this plan to describe their wife as a sister to the powers that be when they sojourned in a foreign land because they really love their wives, right? No, because they really love themselves. Lest we die because of her beautiful appearance, I will hang her out to dry in order to save my skin. Now, Abraham managed to do this on two separate occasions. Genesis chapter 12, he did it in Egypt with regards to Pharaoh. But guess where he did it the second time? Right here. Genesis 20, 1 through 3. And with who? Abimelech. Where? In Gerar. And we see his son Isaac do exactly the same thing as he moves into the valley of Gerar. Someone should say this story is a lot like a father-like son story. There's a lot going on here between these two. And in fact, it's an example of what many of us experience in our own lives with regards to even our own nuclear family, don't we? I hinted at it at the beginning of this service. Our nuclear families, our moms and our dads, our brothers and our sisters, the people who, well, we were born into, that group of which you did not get to choose. That group becomes the most powerful and formative human influence upon you in the early days of your life. And as you grow throughout the course of your life, don't you acknowledge and recognize that very often qualities that are true of your dad are showing up in you or true of your mom showing up in you and no matter how much you try to resist it, you find yourself sounding like them, walking like them, mannerisms like them. You sound, well, your father-like son, your mother-like daughter. And, and though you would long, you would long for the, the positive things, assuming there are some 
about your parents to show up in the course of your life? Isn't it always the things you wished wouldn't be there, though the things that show up in the course of your, your life? Don't we see all of that in some way on the pages of Scripture right here in Genesis chapter 26? It's enough to make someone despairing. Maybe you've been despairing at times over this very reality. No matter how far you run, you can't outrun your family. And you don't even have to spend time with them. They're still there in your head and in your heart. And they seem to be oftentimes an inescapable presence. And that may be in positive ways and in negative ways. Not one nor the other. It's probably both. Thankfully, there's more in this text than that reality. Because this text teaches us that we don't just have a father, Abraham, and a son, Isaac, but we have a different and even deeper measure of a father and son story. We have a heavenly father in this passage, and we have two sons. The story of Abraham that's already been told and the story of Isaac that's right here unfolding. And when we look at this story, we see that there is a power that's greater than your mom or your dad in the shaping influence and the unfolding of your life. There is a parent, a heavenly father, who has the ability and the power to intervene and shape according to his wishes and purposes. And we see it in spades when we look at Genesis 26. In fact, we see it in three specific ways. I want you to see it right at the very beginning first in this way. That both Abraham and Isaac experience the intervention of the Heavenly Father in the giving of divine promises. In the giving of divine promises. I love it at the beginning of Genesis 26. I hinted at it just a little bit ago. The famine is in the land. He knows exactly what Isaac's going to do. He's going to go down to Egypt. Now, maybe in your mind you think, well, why would he go down to Egypt? He, he probably knows that didn't go so hot for his dad, and he got into all kinds of trouble. Everybody went to Egypt. Everybody went to Egypt because they had the Nile. They had water. They had the ability to have a valley that could grow crops. It was a physical, with the eyes way of providing for yourself. God comes in and he intervenes. He says, I don't want you to go down to Egypt. I don't want you to go the path that your father went in this moment. I want to take you to another land. I want you to sojourn in the land that I've given to you. I want you to go down to Gerar. I've got a plan for you there. And then we see, for the first time in the life of Isaac, the Lord appear to him and rehearse the exact promises that were given to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The exact promises. Did you notice that? The promises at the opening of Genesis 26, verse 3, I will be with you, I will bless you, for to you and your offspring I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to you, to, your, to Abraham, your father. Sound familiar? It's the very promises that were given to his father years ago are now being reiterated to Isaac. He is the inheritor, the promised son of these particular promises. The heavenly father is breaking in. He is scripting the unfolding of Isaac's life. He is the primary influence. He is the divine actor that's moving everything on the page. 
In this father-son story, we are not bound merely by the circumstances of a nuclear family of the decisions made by generations past. We have a heavenly father who intervenes, whose power is greater than even our nuclear family to give shape to our intentions and priorities and our values and practices. He comes in and he says, I will change you by my promises. But secondly, we see that the Heavenly Father loves and guides Abraham and Isaac in both of their stories because he doesn't just give them his divine promises. He guides them by his divine providence. He guides them by his divine providence. Now, if you look at this passage and you look at the arc of this passage, so you story lovers in here will love to see the structure of Genesis 1 through 33. It's a beautiful story. It's actually a, a kind of rags to riches story, a kind of crisis to resolution story because right at the very opening of Genesis 26, we have the crisis of famine. But where does the story ultimately land? The final verses of verse 33 is closing with Isaac, a wealthy man with plenty and tons of water. The whole movement of the passage is from famine to plenty. Did you notice everywhere that Isaac went, he found water over and over and over again. It actually caught Abimelech's attention. Hey, we're in a famine and you're doing awesome. Something is up here. Something is going on here. Uh, the narrative of the passage is saying that God, through his power and his promises, through his guidance in his divine providence, can provide for you no matter the nature of the providence as long as you walk according to his word. When you walk according to his word, you may be looking like you're going towards the middle of a desert, and it will be there that he will plant you in the biggest oasis. It is the word of God, not the eyes of the flesh. That is the ultimate vision for the way in which the Christian life is to be lived. Listen, many of us make the decisions in our life, do we not? By the bread that sits on the table, not by the bread that is the word of God. We make the decision by the bread that we want to sit on the table rather than the bread that is the word of God. In this passage, we see God's divine promises leading to his guidance and divine providence. He is providing for Isaac in the midst of a famine. And he's becoming the wealthiest man among them all. The passage doesn't just move from famine to plenty. Notice another motif that runs through the passage. It moves from a fear of violence to a pact of peace. Notice his great concern as he moves into Gerar. Okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you. You've promised me. I'm going into Gerar. Okay, I'm going to lie. She is not my wife. I'm going to do what you're going to say, but I'm going to do it in my way as I go. I'm going to do it as I recall. My father Abraham did it twice before. And no, I will not learn the lesson. He goes in and he does just that out of fear of violence. Out of fear that his, lest my life be taken from me. That was his concern. And don't we see by the end that same Abimelech and the same people he was concerned about, what are they doing? They're going to Abraham and they're saying, hey, please make a pact with us. We know God is with you. Remarkable. There's a fear in Abimelech over the mightiness of the way in which God has grown Isaac. My, how things have changed. 
a reversal in the midst of the unfolding of the passage. It doesn't just move from, from famine to plenty. It doesn't just move from this fear of violence to a pact of peace. It also moves from a sense of no place, overcrowding and conflict, to a place where there is space and harmony. You know, as soon as he moves into the valley of Gerar and begins to settle things and he finds the old well that his father Abraham had, had dug and he begins to redig that well and we're told he gives them the names that his father Abraham had given to the wells. You know what that is? That's ownership. <laughs> oh yeah, this is mine. This was my father's. This is mine. And what happens? All of a sudden, the herdsmen of Gerar say, wait just a minute. The water is ours. This, this is our land. And so what does Isaac do? He goes to the next well and he digs it up. And what do they do? That water is ours. Conflict. Over, keep pushing him to the margins until he finally gets to a place that's on the margins of the valley of Gerar, finds that well and digs it, and a spring full of water is available to him and his people, and we're told there is no conflict over it. And this is what he says, Yahweh, the Lord God, has made for us room. We shall be fruitful. Now, I want you to just hear that, not just in, isn't that sweet? I want you to hear that in the covenant promises way. God's being faithful to what he told him at the beginning of this passage. I will give this land to you. Now, he didn't have it all yet. It's going to be a while before Israel has this land, like, like Joshua We've got a long ways to go before we get to the place where they truly own this land. But what do they have right now? They have a foothold in the land that God is giving them. The beginning of the fulfillment of the promises is taking place from within. Not only do we see the divine promises of God given to his people, his divine providence guiding uh, Abraham and Isaac, but lastly we see that the heavenly father loves his son so much and is shaping and forming their character and direction that he actually gives to them his very presence. He gives to them his very presence. Promises, providence, and presence. They're all there in the midst of the story. Now, where am I seeing that in the midst of this passage? Well, if you'll look with me at Genesis 26.3. It's the first promise that's given to Isaac in the midst of this passage. It's the promise where God says to Isaac, Listen, just as I was with your father Abraham, I will be with you. I will be with you. My presence is going to go with you. Now, this is really important. If you can see the development of each of these themes, God doesn't just simply say, here are my promises, go for it. Here are my promises, head that direction. I'll keep yelling from afar. God says, here's my promises, here's my path. I'll walk with you the whole way. I'll be right there with you. I'll be with you the whole way. I will go with you. One of the beautiful sections here in the passage is how the reiteration of the story of Abraham shows up in the ceremony. The ceremony in verses 23 to 25. It's there in Beersheba where the Lord appears to him at night 
And he reiterates the promises to Isaac. And what does Isaac do? He builds an altar to the Lord and he calls out to the name of the Lord. It's just the same thing that Abraham did in Genesis chapter 15. It's the same thing. In fact, it's kind of the revisit of Genesis chapter 15. And he actually retells to him the promises. Except that he changes the tense. Especially as it regards presence. He doesn't say, I will be with you. What does he say? I am with you. It's not future anymore. It's not looking down the line. I am with you. We're in the midst of the journey that I've called you on, and I am with you. I'm presently there with you. I hope it hearkens you back to the end of the book of Matthew, where Jesus, as he's ascending into the heavenly places to be at the right hand of the Father, where he is Even this morning as we worship, interceding for us, he's right there at the right hand of the Father. As he's there, lifted up, his disciples are listening to the final words that are on his lips. And he says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Isn't that Jesus just reiterating the covenant promises that have been true since the very beginning of the pages of Scripture? Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no shifting shadow and there is no change within. You can base your entire confidence upon what he says is who he is. With our God, what you see in his word is what you get. I am with you, Isaac. Maybe one of you today needs to know that in the midst of the trials and the tribulations that you're walking through. Because maybe it's famine, maybe it's conflict, maybe you're tempted to lie and say she is my sister. In your own situation, in your own scenario, you can play it out. You would know it better than I would know how to speak to it in this moment. The Spirit knows. We'll trust Him with that. Maybe you need to know that I am with you. Maybe you need to know it in the way that, well, that old Japanese pastor knew it. Ken Hughes tells the beloved story of a Japanese pastor whose name was Lo and who read the end of Matthew chapter 28 in the English for the first time. And he read in the King James, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the man took it as a personal that he's with me. I'm in the Bible. Lo, I am with you all. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And he took it as a personal declaration of God's presence with him. Of course, that's not what the text means. Except that's exactly what the text means. Jim, Steve, Margaret, Susan, put in your name. I'm with you always. Even to the end of the age. Critically important that we understand his promises of will in the future become present in the reality of the walking. But here's what's glorious. is It doesn't just stop there. Look at verse 28. When Abimelech comes... To see Isaac, because he's a little afraid of how mighty he's gotten, and he's seen the fruit of the fact that God's with him. Notice the way he says it. Verse 28, we plainly see that the Lord has been with you. The Lord has been with you. Every sense, every tense is used with regards to the presence of God in the midst of this text. He will be with you. I am with you. He has been with you. A beautiful testimony to the reality of the Lord's commitment.
to create in the life of Abraham and Isaac a father-like son story. Do you see the remarkable things that happen here in Isaac's life? The fruitfulness, the wealth, the, the water, the, the covenants, the pacts, the resolutions to the conflicts. All of that is because Isaac is so ingenious. No. No, we've seen his foolishness in this passage. It's because our heavenly family is the most powerful shaping influence on our life. Our Heavenly Father is the one who's in control. Not the circumstances of this life. You're not at the whims of the things of this life. Even when the herdsmen of Gerar come and Abimelech comes and you're in the midst of a famine, you're not at the whims of this life. Your Heavenly Father is the most powerful influence on the formation of who it is you are to become son and daughter of the king. That's who you are. Now why that's so critically important is to understand that really what we see in the midst of this passage is, is a glimmer of what we also desperately know that we need. And the fact is that there is a waging war that's going on inside of us. Of a power from a father whose name is Adam. Whose original sin and lineage is present powerfully in this room right now. In every heart in the pew and the one who stands before you in the pulpit. And the pages of scripture are teaching us and showing us that the heart of that father Abraham was actually the first son of the heavenly father. He was supposed to be shaped after the character and the influence of the father in whose image he was made. To walk in the commandments of his promises, be guided by his providence and walk in the cool of the day with his presence. He was to be fruitful. He was to multiply. He was to fill the earth. He was in many ways to accomplish what would be prefigured in the redemptive promises of Abraham. I will be with you. I'll give you a seed and I'll give you a land and you'll be a blessing to all the earth. Does that sound familiar? That was the call of Genesis 1, and 28. That's who Adam was always supposed to be. Adam mortgaged that by choosing what? A different father. A different father. Why do I call the evil one a father? Because Jesus does. When Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and they are claiming that they are children of Abraham, Jesus says, if you're really children of Abraham, you would know who I am. <laughs> but the fact that you don't know who I am tells me that you are not children of Abraham, but that your father is the devil. You have come under the devices and the manipulation of the one who is described as the prince and the power of the air. You see, that's the war that's going on inside of us. It's, it's, not, it's not really, at the end of the day, friends, I, I, I know personally it may feel this way, it's not your parents. Cut them a little slack. Now, I don't know how bad your parents were, 
But I do know that they come from a long line of bad parents. A long line of bad parents. And that formative influence, spiritually speaking, has been passed down from generation to generation like father, like son. The prayer of this passage and the recognition of this passage is that we have always had a heavenly father who's been faithful and has been striving through his promises and his providence and his presence to shape us into his likeness. The problem has never been that we haven't had a faithful father. It's that our father hasn't had faithful sons and daughters. That's been the problem. Which is why we can't blame it on our heavenly father for the dysfunction that is our life. It's not his fault. The responsibility is squarely on us. And we can't be, you know this is true, we can't be the sons and the daughters of the Heavenly Father that we've been called to be. There's too much of Adam in us. You'll never outrun him. We don't need a new father. What we do need is a better son. A better son. Someone who will be the son that you would never be, to be the daughter, as it were, that you would never be. And it is that whom the Lord Jesus Christ is for each and every one who has trusted in him this morning. He is your standing before Almighty God. He has been the one who is the completion of the promises that were given to Abraham and to Isaac. Don't you see? He is the Son of God, the very person of God. He is the presence of God. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the providence of God in the guiding of all things to redemption. And he is the very presence of God in the incarnation tabernacled within us through the power of the Holy Spirit who cries out what, Paul says in Romans 8, For those of you who are believers in Jesus, he tells you to cry, Abba, Father. Now, where do you get off being able to call God Father? Only if the Son, Jesus Christ, has given you the credentials and the merits to be able to stand before that Father and remove the penalty of judgment and justice that is rightfully due, only if you had the standing of Jesus Christ are you able to say, Abba, Father, and if you have trusted in Christ today, you have that standing. That's the power and the beauty of the gospel. That's the glory is that you can say, Heavenly Father, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. How is it that we could say that apart from the standing that we've received in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see, this is a father like son and like daughter story. All of it is. I love it. I must admit it. I love it because I love my parents. I love it when someone sees me next to my dad. And they go, man, you look, you guys... You look just like your dad. I mean, the way you stand, the mannerisms, the way you walk, the voice, the whole thing. And it's beautiful because he's my dad and I love my dad. But I'd love it if someone looked at me 
and said, Nate, the more I spend time with you, the more and more you look like your heavenly dad. The more I recognize your heavenly dad in you, you are definitely an adopted son of the Father who is in heaven. It's unmistakable. As much as I love looking like my dad, because he's a godly man, I'm grateful for that. I don't really want to look like him. I want to look like my better dad, my heavenly father, and I want to be the better son conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Friends, to the degree that we begin to grasp the depth of Genesis 26, 1 to 33, and the father-son story that is the story of the Bible, the father-son and daughter story that is the story of the Bible, we can begin to grow into being sons and daughters that don't just look like our nuclear family systems and all their radical dysfunction, but begin to look like the redemption of being shaped by the character of the heavenly father, redeemed by the perfect son. Friends in Christ, how about we grow into being a little bit more like our dad? Father in heaven, we would ask that you would do that in humble reliance and recognition that not a one of us could grow into the likeness of the Son, Jesus Christ. And be reflective of your character, O Father. But don't miss the heart cry in this room of those who know you. That we would be men and women who are more and more shaped by the realities of this redemption. And the father-son story that you're creating. Father, come and hear the needs of us, your people. And let the witness be that we're becoming a little bit more like you every single day. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.